Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 9th through Sunday, March 12th, feature guest conductor Herbert Blomstedt and cellist Andre Yonitsa. The program includes music by Dvorak, the Cello Concerto, and Symphony No. 8. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on the Dvorak Cello Concerto, a work lasting about 40 minutes. It was Victor Herbert, the composer of Babes in Toyland and Naughty Marietta, who inspired Dvorak to write the most beloved cello concerto in the repertoire. We owe this historical curiosity, along with some of Dvorak's most popular music, to Jeanette M. Thurber, the wife of a New York wholesale grocer who exhausted her husband's millions, establishing an English-language opera company that folded and a national conservatory of music that flourished long enough to entice Dvorak to settle temporarily in the new world. The composer agreed to serve as director of her school for $15,000, and when he arrived in 1892, Victor Herbert was the head of the cello department. Herbert, who had come to the United States from Vienna only six years before, was highly regarded as a cellist, conductor, and composer, though he hadn't yet written the first of the 40 operettas that would make him enormously popular. In 1892, Dvorak was as famous as any composer alive, Taking on an administrative title and a heavy teaching schedule was probably an unfortunate waste of his time and talents, although the music Dvorak wrote in this country includes some of his best. A string quartet and a string quintet, both titled American, composed in Spillville, Iowa, the New World Symphony, and this cello concerto. For several years, Dvorak had been unmoved by a request from his friend Hanush Vihan, the cellist of the Bohemian Quartet, to write a cello concerto. During his second year at the National Conservatory, Dvorak attended the premiere of Victor Herbert's second cello concerto given by the New York Philharmonic on March 9, 1894. It is difficult today to know why this long-forgotten score made such a deep impression on him, because Herbert was hardly an overwhelming or influential talent. But Dvorak enthusiastically applauded Herbert's concerto, and he heard something in it that made him think for the first time that there was important music to be written for solo cello and orchestra. This concerto would prove to be the last major symphonic work of his career. On April 28, 1894, Dvorak signed a new two-year contract with the conservatory. After spending the summer holiday in Bohemia, he returned to New York on November 1st. A week later, he began this concerto. While he was writing the second movement, he received word that his sister-in-law, Josefina Konitsova, with whom he had once been in love, was seriously ill. As a tribute to her, he quoted at length one of her favorite melodies, Leave Me Alone, the first of his four songs, Opus 82. He completed the concerto on February 9th, his son Otakar's 10th birthday, at 11.30 in the morning. After the premiere of the New World Symphony in 1893, Dvorak said, I know that if I had not seen America, I never would have written my new symphony. 
the cello concerto shows no such outward signs of the composer's American experience. It doesn't imitate the rhythms and melodies of the native music he heard in the United States and has often been accepted as an early warning sign of his homesickness. In fact, once Dvorak returned to Bohemia for the summer of 1895 with his new concerto in his bags, he realized that he couldn't leave his homeland again. In August, he wrote to Mrs. Thurber asking to be released from his contract. Since he had already contributed so much to American music, including a symphony as popular as any ever written, she could not refuse. The unveiling of the cello concerto, the last of Dvorak's American products, belongs to the final chapter of his life. The premiere was given in London in March 1896 with the composer conducting. The first American performance was not given until December. The literature for solo cello and orchestra isn't extensive. At best, Dvorak can't have known more than the single concertos by Haydn, a second was discovered in 1961, and Schumann, the first of Saint-Saëns II, and Tchaikovsky's Rococo variations for cello and orchestra. He also knew the triple concerto by Beethoven and the double concerto by Brahms. Dvorak had written one long-winded cello concerto in his youth and later said he thought little of the cello as a solo instrument. High up it sounds nasal and low down it growls. Now, with little previous inclination and few useful models, Dvorak gave the form its finest example. Brahms is reported to have said, Why on earth didn't I know that one could write a cello concerto like this? Had I known, I would have written one long ago. The first movement of Dvorak's cello concerto is as impressive as anything in the composer's output. The music is long and expansive. The orchestral exposition commits the textbook sin of traveling to a foreign key for the second subject, a luxury traditionally saved for the soloist. But Dvorak's theme is so magnificent, Donald Tovey called it one of the most beautiful passages ever written for the horn, that it can justify the risk. Dvorak later admitted the melody meant a great deal to him. Once the soloist enters, the music grows richer and more fanciful. The development section dissolves into simple lyricism. By the recapitulation, Dvorak is writing his own rules. He bypasses his first theme and goes straight for the big horn melody, as if he couldn't wait to hear it again. The movement is all the stronger for its daring and unconventional architecture. Dvorak's progress on the slow movement was sidetracked by the memory of Josefina, and as a result, the music he wrote is interrupted midway by the poignant song she loved. The depth of his feeling for her, often debated and sometimes denied, is painfully clear. Josefina died soon after Dvorak permanently returned to Bohemia, and after hearing the news, he took this jaunty rondo finale down from the shelf and added a long, contemplative coda as a memorial. The concerto still ends in high spirits, but it's no longer the same piece Dvorak took home from the New World. Philip Husher's program notes on Antonin Dvorak's cello concerto. And now on to Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, a work lasting about 36 minutes. 
Dvorak was the first of the great European composers to visit Chicago. He came as a star attraction at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, where he conducted the Chicago Symphony, then known as the Chicago Orchestra, in this G major symphony. Dvorak's music was already popular in the city. Theodore Thomas, founder of the Chicago Symphony, had programmed Dvorak's Husitska Overture to close the orchestra's inaugural concert in October 1891, and he led the U.S. premiere of his violin concerto just three weeks into the season. Dvorak has arrived, ran a headline in the Chicago Daily Tribune on August 12, 1893. In disposition, he is modest and retiring and does not look near as fierce as would be supposed from his picture, the paper reported. Dvorak, his wife, and their children had already taken up residence at the new Lakota Hotel on the southeast corner of Michigan Avenue and 30th Street. The centerpiece of Dvorak's visit was his headliner appearance with the Chicago Symphony in Festival Hall in honor of Bohemian Day, August 12th. The day was cool and bright, the New York Times reported, and the visitors evinced the keenest pleasure in viewing the many things of interest. A crowd estimated at 10,000 watched a morning parade wind through the city's south side streets. Swarms of Bohemians wearing blue and red the national colors of Bohemia began to arrive at the fair as soon as the parade was over, and they came in such crowds that the hearts of the exposition officials were filled with joy. Festival Hall, a great domed colonnaded amphitheater overlooking a lagoon and situated at the intersection of two broad promenades, was packed for the afternoon concert of bohemian music. The hall seated 4,000 with standing room for another 2,000. The exposition orchestra, as it was billed, was essentially the Chicago Symphony, expanded to 114 men. As Dvorak walked out upon the stage, a storm of applause greeted him, the Chicago Daily Tribune reported. For nearly two minutes, the old composer stood beside the music rack, baton in hand, bowing his acknowledgments. The players dropped their instruments to join in the welcome. Another article remarked that the importance of the concert naturally centered in the Dvorak Symphony, a work of rare melodious beauty. The Tribune concluded the orchestra caught the spirit and magnetism of the distinguished leader. The audience sat as if spellbound. Tremendous outbursts of applause were given. The G major symphony was listed as number four, which is how it was known during the composer's lifetime, although we now number it the eighth of Dvorak's nine symphonies. In fact, to the late 19th century, Dvorak was the composer of just five symphonies. Only with the publication of his first four symphonies in the 1950s did we begin to use the current numbering. Soon, even generations of music lovers who grew up knowing this genial G major symphony as number four came to accept it as number eight. By the time he came to Chicago, Dvorak had already conducted this symphony several times, always to an enthusiastic response, first in Prague and then in London, Frankfurt, and Cambridge, where he received an honorary Doctor of Music degree there in 1891. Quote, nothing but ceremony and nothing but doctors, he remembered. All faces were serious, and it seemed to me as if no one knew any other language but Latin. The Chicago reception, capped by tremendous outbursts of applause, according to the Tribune, was equally positive. 
In the 1880s and 1890s, Dvorak was as popular and successful as any living composer, including Brahms, who had helped promote Dvorak's music early on and had even convinced his own publisher, Shimrock, to take on this new composer and to issue his Moravian duets in 1877. Dvorak proved to be a prudent addition to the catalog and the Slavonic dances he wrote the following year at Shimrock's request became one of the firm's all-time bestsellers. Dvorak was then insulted and outraged when, in 1890, Shemrock offered him only a thousand marks for his G major symphony, particularly since the company had paid 3,000 marks for the last one and he gave the rights to the London firm of Novello instead. At least he did not follow the greedy example set by Beethoven and sell the same score to two different publishers. Dvorak's G Major Symphony is his most bucolic and idyllic. It is, in effect, his pastoral, and like Brahms' second or Mahler's fourth, it stands apart from his other works in the form. Like the subsequent New World Symphony, composed in a tiny town set in the rolling green hills of northeast Iowa, it was written in the seclusion of the countryside. In the summer of 1889, Dvorak retired to his country home at Visoka, away from the pressure of urban life and far from the demands of performers and publishers. There, he realized that he was ready to tackle a new symphony. It had been four years since his last, and that he was eager to compose something different from the other symphonies with individual thoughts worked out in a new way. Composition was remarkably untroubled. Melodies simply pour out of me, Dvorak said at the time, and both the unashamedly tuneful nature of this score and the timetable of its progress confirm the composer's boast. He began his new symphony on August 26th. The first movement was finished in two weeks, the second a week later, and the remaining two movements in just a few days apiece. The orchestration took only another six weeks. The first movement is, as Dvorak predicted, put together in a new way. The opening theme, pointedly in G minor, not the G major promised by the key signature, functions as an introduction, although significantly it is in the same tempo as the rest of the movement. It appears like a signpost at each of the movement's crucial junctures, here before the exposition, later before the start of the development, and finally to introduce the recapitulation. Dvorak is particularly generous with melodic ideas in this movement. As Leos Janacek said of this music, you've scarcely got to know one figure before a second one beckons with a friendly nod, so you're in a state of constant but pleasurable excitement. The second movement, an adagio, alternates C major and C minor, somber and gently merry music, as well as passages for strings and winds. It is a masterful example of complexities and contradictions swept together in one great paragraph. The central climax, with trumpet fanfares over a timpani roll, is thrilling. The third movement is not a conventional scherzo, but a lilting, radiant waltz marked Allegro Grazioso, the same marking Brahms used for the third movements of his second and third symphonies. The main theme of the trio was rescued from Dvorak's comic opera The Stubborn Lovers, where Tonic worries that his love Lenka will be married off to his father. 
The finale begins with a trumpet fanfare and continues with a theme and several variations. The theme, introduced by the cellos, is a natural subject of such deceptive simplicity that it cost its normally tuneful composer nine drafts before he was satisfied. The variations, which incorporate everything from a sunny flute solo to a determined march in the minor mode, eventually fade to a gentle farewell before Dvorak adds one last rip-roaring page to ensure the audience enthusiasm that by 1889 he had grown to expect. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dvorak's Symphony No. 8. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.